Good response. Good morning, everybody. My name is Phil Adams. I have the joy and privilege of serving as pastor here alongside our elders and team and deacons here at Park, Rogers Park. Thank you for coming out and being with us this morning on this beautiful, beautiful Chicago weekend. If you're here today and you're just uh, maybe here for the first time or you're, you're joining, I feel like I'm, I'm saying that every week right now because every week I see new faces. We are in a series right now working through the gospel of Luke as a church. That's, that's how we teach. We don't really take, teach topics as such, but we take books of the Bible and we work through them chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This is, this is kind of our way of ensuring we place value in every chapter and every verse in God's Word. And like I said, the book that we're in right now is the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got a Bible there, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. And we're still at the very beginning, but the chapters or the passages that we've been studying the last number of weeks, they, they very clearly, they build on one another. Two weeks ago in chapter three, Jimmy preached on the identity of Christ, that Jesus was not the son of Joseph, but he was the son of God that Jesus' identity was based on his relationship with his heavenly Father who, who knew him and loved him and was pleased with him. And then if you hear last week, we looked at verses 1 to 13 of chapter 4, and we asked the question, is Jesus going to live up to his family name? Is Jesus going to disappoint his heavenly Father? And we learned last week that if Jesus did not portray his heavenly Father in the wilderness when he was at his weakest, when he was at his most vulnerable, then he never would. If he didn't then, he never will. Jesus went on, went to the cross to secure for us our salvation and reigns today as our advocate in heaven before the Father, yes, out of love and commitment towards us, but also out of an allegiance to the will of his heavenly Father. Church, our salvation is secured by the Trinitarian bond of allegiance, one to the other between the Father and the Son. And so as we come to our next passage today, what we know based on last week's passage is that what we're going to find Jesus saying and what we're going to find Jesus doing is in step with the will of his heavenly Father because Jesus is always living a life in step with the will of his heavenly Father. Unlike us, Jesus never steps out of step. This is one of the signature marks of the Trinity that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, that they have different roles, but they're always aligned. They have different roles, but they have one purpose. And so what is it? That's the question today's passage answers for us. What is the purpose for which God the Father sent his Son? What was the end to which the Trinity was at work through Christ's life and resurrection? What was the purpose for which Christ came? What we're going to see in the passage today, I'm going to read shortly, is Jesus making an announcement to answer that very question when he tells his hometown, where he grew up, his old family and his old friends, the pur purpose for which he was sent. But today's passage is not simply about the purpose for which Christ came, it's about how we approach Jesus to receive that which he came to offer. And maybe you're like, I, I haven't thought about that before, that, that, it's, a, that it's possible to approach God wrongly. Maybe you, you haven't thought that it is possible to seek a relationship with Christ based upon an incorrect premise. But we know this is possible because today's story ends with Jesus' hometown, his old family and friends doing just that. And when Jesus consequently refuses to give what they demand, they become so angry 
they try to throw Jesus off a cliff. These are the very people that knew Jesus growing up. These are the people that felt that they had a close, tight-knit relationship with Jesus. These are the people that went to worship every week, and yet they got so angry with Jesus that they wanted to kill him. And I wonder, I couldn't help wondering in studying this passage, if that kind of resentment could ever become possible for us. I wonder if the circumstances of our lives, if the losses that we experience could ever breed within us that kind of contempt for Christ. If Jesus doesn't give us what we believe he owes us, if Jesus doesn't give us what we believe we have become entitled to, what if life gets harder? What if, what if Jesus doesn't make things easier? What if Jesus takes from us what we thought was already rightfully ours, our home, our job, our ministry, our health, our reputation? Despite what you maybe have already lost this week or this year, is the gospel still good? Or to use the the wording of our passage, on that day when we are poor and we are blind, and we are held captive to a bed in a nursing home or a hospital on that day, will the gospel still be good? Or will we succumb to feeling resentful in our relationship with Christ? Will we one day look on Christ with bitterness and anger? Let's read our passage, Luke chapter 4, verse 14 to 30. And it reads like this, Luke chapter 4, 14 to 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all of the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath." 
And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. God, we thank you for every person that's here this morning. God, we recognize your hand on our lives, God, drawing us, allowing us, getting us here this morning. God, we acknowledge that your word is truth and life, and you have given it to us to reveal yourself, to reveal your will and your ways to us. So God, I pray that we would have hearts that are surrendered to you this morning. I pray that we would have a deep desire to grow in Christ-likeness, that we have an openness to the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives. Do that today, God, not even just amongst us individually, but as a church body, God, would you set us on fire with a desire to know you and glorify you and share you with this world, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've got your Bible already open, keep it open. I'm going to pretty much work very much through the verses today, so keep your Bible open or on your phone. The first verse for today is chapter 4, verse 14, and it reads like this. And Jesus returned from the wilderness where he was tempted, and it says he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Last week, we we mentioned how the Holy Spirit indwells every follower of Jesus, and there are three roles that we see in the Holy Spirit play, we see the Holy Spirit playing in these chapters. Firstly, the Holy Spirit is the signifier of divine approval. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit signifies the Holy Spirit confirms that you two are being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that God sees us as his beloved children. The Holy Spirit is the signifier of divine approval. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is the voice of divine guidance. The Holy Spirit speaks to us and leads us, and that's why we seek through prayer and and, and time spent in God's Word to be attuned to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. The Holy Spirit is a signifier of divine approval. But also, thirdly, the Holy Spirit, as we see today in verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the giver of divine empowerment. It is the Holy Spirit living within us that makes us capable of living lives of allegiance and obedience to our Heavenly Father. The Holy Spirit is the signifier of divine approval. The Holy Spirit is the voice of divine guidance. The Holy Spirit is the giver of divine empowerment. And so as Jesus steps out intentionally into this life of teaching and ministry, he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We've been building up to this point over the last number of weeks, and people are beginning to take notice. In verse 14, it says, a report went out about Jesus. People were talking about him. People were starting to take notice of him, hearing of the miracles that he was performing, And the buzz around Jesus must have been in no place more visceral, can you imagine, than in his hometown. In verse 15, it says, Jesus was being glorified by all. Jesus was being celebrated and elevated in all the surrounding areas. And then in verse 16, it says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Luke sets the stage here for, for an interesting coming together, a homecoming. The coming together of Jesus recently empowered by the Holy Spirit, finding newfound fame with those that have known Jesus in the most normal, mundane sense, those who watched Jesus grow up as a child. The people of Nazareth had a deep familial and provincial bond with Jesus. To them, he was not just even just the son of a carpenter, but he was a son of their carpenter. 
He, he, he was little Jesus to them, little, little scruff Jesus. Jesus spoke with their accent. He knew, he knew their local expressions. He knew their inside jokes. It was in Nazareth that, Nazareth that Jesus would have at this point been most clearly claimed as nobody special, just one of us. But one of us who has begun making a name for himself. Then as he arrives home in the latter part of verse 16, it says, as was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. In verse 15, we see that Jesus had increasingly started teaching in synagogues, and so it's no surprise that he has an opportunity to teach in his hometown. Verse 17 says, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And this is what Jesus reads. Let's hear this together. Imagine Jesus standing up to read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then when Jesus was finished his sermon, it says in verse 20, he gave back the scroll to the attendant and he sat down. Snappy. Some of you are thinking I wish Phil would preach 15 second sermons. It was short, it was effective. It says in verse 20, as Jesus sat down, the eyes of all who were there were fixed on him. There was something that he said. There was a noticeable proclamation. There was a noticeable announcement that was being made that froze everybody in their seats. In verse 21, Jesus himself interprets for us what was being implied by the verses that he read. He says himself, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. These verses in Isaiah, they were about an Old Testament figure that was believed to be coming one day to be a savior, to be a rescuer, to be a redeemer of God's people. And when you look at this Old Testament quote from Isaiah, there is one word that Jesus goes out of his way to keep repeating. And the word is me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. He has sent me. It's me. The one that you have been waiting for, Nazareth, it's me. Then let's look what Jesus as Savior has come to do. There are three primary statements of intent, of purpose, Jesus says. He says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. I have come to proclaim freedom to the captives. I have come to offer recovery of sight to the blind. And a lot of people have studied these verses to understand what Jesus is saying here. There are some people that think that Jesus is referring to him having come to solely meet people's physical needs, to, to, to eradicate poverty, to set people free from experiencing oppression or injustices, that Jesus is solely talking about an intent to heal the sick and to offer the blind sight. Then there are others who think Jesus is solely speaking metaphorically. That the, the poverty Jesus mentions here is simply spiritual poverty. That the, the, the freedom he speaks about is simply freedom from sin. Some think Jesus is speaking solely in physical terms. Some people think Jesus is speaking solely in spiritual terms. But the truth is, in the ancient Mediterranean culture, there was no separation between the spiritual and the physical aspects of life. Rather, physical realities and spiritual realities, they were intertwined. And they were correct to, to think this way. We do, as a matter of fact, live in a world where, where the, the physical and the spiritual cannot be separated. 
Even in a basic understanding that God, every second, is the sustainer of life, speaks to this. If God was not holding us all together this morning, we would disintegrate. God's sovereignty over every physical thing speaks to us of the intersection between the spiritual and the physical. To be human is to have a body and it's to have a soul. We are holistic in nature. And there is a lot more that could be said on that, but important to this passage How this understanding of reality was playing out in the ancient Mediterranean world was through an ill-informed but popular narrative, causing those of low status, those that were poor, the sick, the lame, the blind, the outcasts, to be viewed as people outside the boundary of God's favor. In a means of reconciling how the spiritual intersected with the physical, it was common to believe poverty, sickness, slavery came about as a result of God's displeasure, either on somebody personally, they had done something wrong themselves, or their family had done something wrong, or their community had done something wrong. And so when Jesus stands up and he reads that he has come with good news for the poor, so that the blind may recover their sight, so the captives might be set free. He is aligning himself with a purpose that goes against the religious grain. But look how his hometown respond in verse 22. It says, and all spoke well of him. Jesus, I mean, you're, you're, you're doing a great work. <laughs> I, I, I commend you for your efforts, son. And not only that, his hometown didn't only speak well of him. Look at the rest of verse 22. All spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming out from his mouth. Not only did they commend Jesus for his efforts, but they really marveled when they thought about Jesus being so considerate towards those that did not deserve his consideration. Church, they marveled at God's grace. They, they, they marveled that Jesus was choosing to proclaim his favor on those that did not deserve it. And as they are pondering the gracious words of Christ, someone shouts out at the end of verse 22, is this not Joseph's son? And this could have been said for, for, for various reasons. Maybe someone genuinely just noticed But when we keep reading, we see that there is a further logic or intent behind asking the question, is this not Joseph's son? Let me explain what the intent was, and it's a little bit tricky given the local expressions used, but bear with me. In verse 23, as a matter of response to them working out that Jesus is Joseph's son, Jesus says, without a doubt, you're now going to quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. Bear with me. Now that you've realized I'm from here, you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. And when this proverb, where this proverb came from, was imagining a a fictional doctor who would use their ability and knowledge to heal others, but who would refuse to heal themselves. And so it became common to think of having having to say to this fictional doctor, physician, heal yourself. Don't, don't, just, don't just heal others, heal yourself as well. And people would have said this when someone was withholding something that others also felt entitled to receiving. 
Physician, you should not only heal others, the physician should heal himself. Physician, you must not refuse one's own self. You must not refuse one's own family. You must not refuse one's hometown. We too are entitled to receive your help and your healing that you're giving to others. So listen to this summary of what has just occurred. We can see this play out in verse 22 and verse 23. As those in Nazareth were pondering, admiring Jesus' gracious words towards the undeserving and the sick and the poor and the blind, someone remembers that Jesus is one of them too, a Nazarite. And by shouting out, is this not Joseph's son? The intent was to point out if we are the people of his hometown, Jesus, if you're one of us, If we have the same accent and we laugh at the same jokes, then it's without a doubt. It is doubtless. It is absolutely logical and to be expected that you will absolutely use your status as Savior and Redeemer to do for us what you're doing for the poor and the sick and the blind. It is doubtless. It is obvious. It's common sense. You're one of us. Hence the demand of verse 23, what we have heard you do in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Rogers Park, where Jesus' hometown goes wrong, is in thinking that Jesus was some, had some kind of obligation towards them. That they are in some way entitled to his favor. Maybe you're, you're, you're here today and you look at your life and you think, I'm not so bad. I'm at church today. <laughs> I live a pretty upright life. Yeah, there's this and there's that, but God would be pretty petty if he didn't recognize that I'm one of the good guys. Or maybe some of us even more so aren't just at church today, but we're here every week. (laughs) Do you know how many times I serve in the kids' ministry? (laughs) Do you know what I do or what I have done for the Lord? Do you know the reputation that I have? And it would be amiss not to highlight that the Nazarites are claiming Jesus has an obligation towards them because of where they are from. Surely to be from the U.S. is, not, is that not basically to be, be, be Christian? Is God not on our side anyway? And notice this, friends. It's, it's, it's not that the people of Nazareth didn't have need. They, they thought it was doubtless that Jesus should show them favor because they did have need. Just like in Capernaum, they had their blind and they had their lame and they had their suffering. And this is Jesus' response to their request. Firstly, he says in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, which is another proverb, which is Jesus' way of saying, you aren't going to like what you hear next. Then in verse 25 to verse 27, Jesus summarizes two short stories from the Old Testament found in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. In both stories, they draw their meaning from the existence of these socio-religious boundaries at play in these stories, boundaries that would have commonly communicated based on somebody's circumstances who it was that was in a position of favor and good standing before God and who it was that was considered outside the boundary of God's favor. The poor, the sick, the captive. The first story is found in 1 Kings when Elijah, a prophet sent by God, goes not to Nazareth, but Zarephath, which was a town outside the boundaries of Israel where there was a famine. And there he discovers a widow gathering sticks. And Elijah asks this woman for some water and for some bread, to which she responds, remember, there's a famine, I have nothing. 
only a handful of flour and a little oil. She goes on to tell Elijah that she is in fact gathering sticks to prepare her final meal before she and her son die. The widow outside of Israel, outside a position of good repute, gathering sticks is at an end to herself. So Elijah, knowing this is her last meal, asks her to share it with him, and she does. She shares with Elijah the nothing that she has, and then based upon her humble act of kindness and the giving of the nothing that she had, Elijah says, for thus says the Lord, your jar of flour shall not be spent, and your jug of oil shall not run empty until the, one day, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And her flour never ran out, and her oil kept running. That's the, the first story that began to rattle those in Jesus' hometown. Here's the second. In verse 27, Jesus mentions the healing of Naaman. Just like the widow Naaman was not from Nazareth, he too was from outside the boundary of Israel. He was from Syria. Not only that, but he was a commander in the Syrian army. In fact, when Naaman discovers that he has leprosy in this story, it is a little girl that was taken from Israel during a raid that gives him advice. Naaman was not just outside the boundary of Israel, he was an enemy. And now an enemy with leprosy, a disease that caused the immediate rejection of someone from society, this little girl tells him, go to Elisha. And Elisha tells him, if you want to be healed, you need to wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. And it's interesting, his initial response is anger. What, 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 who, do you, who do you think I am? I'm not washing in that filthy water. I'm, I'm not doing something so beneath my dignity. Do you know I'm a commander? So it says he returned home in rage. Just like the rage that is stirring in the hearts of those listening in Nazareth. But Naaman, when he gets home, he changes his mind. Naaman comes to the end of himself. He comes to the end of his good name. He accepts a position of surrender and humility and has nothing left to give, but places hope in what Elijah asks of him. And the commander of the Syrian army gets into the water and he is healed. And so, aren't these two beautiful stories? of provision, of healing, of hope? How, how, could, how could anyone hear these stories and, and not find them uplifting? But look at chapter 4 of Luke, verse 28. Why in the world does it say that all in the synagogue, after hearing these stories, they were filled with wrath, rage, anger? So much so to the point in verse 29 that the very people who watched Jesus grow up, the very people that had a claim on him as one of us, the very people that found him commendable and marveled at his grace, they now want him dead. And so they drive him outside to push him off a cliff. How did this happen? How did those who have just marveled at Jesus for coming, for coming to proclaim good news to the poor and the sick and the captive, what happened that they have changed their minds about Jesus, what made them resent him, what has made it that Jesus, made Jesus to be treated with such contempt? Both the stories Jesus told, they start in the same manner, it says in verse 25 and verse 27. Verse 25, it says, there were many widows in Israel. Verse 27, it says there were many lepers in Israel. And now Jesus is standing in his hometown. 
after telling two stories of God's favor being freely given not to those in Israel, but to those outside the boundary of Israel, to a widow and a leper. As to say, your sense of entitlement carries no weight. Your sense of entitlement bears no claim over me. And as Jesus' hometown comes to terms with this, if what they have built their relation, that what they have built their relationship with, with Jesus on does not mean anything, if what they think will doubtless earn them his favor, in fact, doesn't, then they realize they are no better than those they commend Jesus for being so gracious towards. They are no better than those that don't deserve God's favor. They realize they are no better than the poor, the blind, and the captive. No better than those who do not deserve Jesus' consideration, which means they are not only no better than the poor and the blind and the captive, they are, in fact, the blind and the poor and the captive. And that is what they could not stomach. That, it's, that is what sets them into a rage. Church, when Jesus announced his purpose, it was the announcement of God's plan to make a way of redemption for all those that have come to an end of themselves. And we are, and all those that are willing to admit their hopelessness and their lostness, He came for all who recognize that standing before Jesus, we have nothing to give, we have nothing to claim, no righteousness to offer, no entitlement that carries any weight. All we have to offer is just a life broken by sin and the circumstances of life. Church, Jesus speaks about coming to proclaim good news to the poor, the blind, the captive, holistically, because he knows our hearts cry for a holistic solution. He knows that we come to an end of ourselves, not only in recognizing our sin, but we come to the end of ourselves when we find ourselves broken by the problems of life that we can't solve. Jesus is setting the expectation that the end of of entitlement and the beginning of saving faith is most likely going to be birthed in moments of desperation, moments of poverty and leprosy. And so if that is you today, would you come to Jesus today with the nothing that you have? Would you receive Christ today in the only way that you can, with humility and with surrender and with empty hands? And when poverty and leprosy do come our way, and in some form they will come your way, when we lose our home or our job or our ministry, our health or our reputation, there is an alternative to anger. When life, when life gets harder, when we have served Christ for many, many years and life gets harder, there is an alternative to bitterness. There is an alternative to resentment. And the alternative is remembering that it was amidst the losses of life that Jesus considered we'd have the best chance of truly hearing the good news of the gospel. That it's then, it's maybe right now, today, for you, he believed we'd be able to attune ourselves most clearly to the hope of eternal life and the joy of forgiveness of sins offered in Christ and the kingdom to come when all wrongs will be made holistically right when we are most physically and spiritually attuned to our own weakness. 
So that on that day when we are poor and we are blind and we are held captive to a bed or in a nursing home or a hospital on that day, we can remember that the Jesus who met us when he saved us is still today the Jesus who comes reclaiming to us good news. Let's pray. God, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us for thinking our service towards you in some way creates some entitlement in our relationship. God, I pray that we will never forget as a people that we are the poor, that we are the blind, that we are the captive, that we were dead, and you raised us to life. God, I thank you that you commit yourself to us out of grace to give to us what we do not deserve. God, I pray that whatever happens in our lives, whatever losses we experience, whatever struggles we experience, I pray, God, that we will know deeply that you love us and you're for us and we have eternal hope and eternal life in you. Would you communicate that to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.